Chapter 18 of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 18. Miriam and Buana were sitting on the veranda together the following day when a horseman appeared in the distance riding across the plain toward the bungalow. Buana shaded his eyes with his hand and gazed out toward the oncoming rider. He was puzzled. Strangers were few in Central Africa. Even the blacks, for a distance of many miles in every direction, were well known to him. No white man came within a hundred miles that word of his coming did not reach Buana long before the stranger. His every move was reported to the big Buana, just what animals he killed, and how many of each species, how he killed them, too, for Buana would not permit the use of prussic acid or strychnine, and how he treated his boys. Several European sportsmen had been turned back to the coast by the big Englishman's orders because of unwarranted cruelty to their black followers, and one whose name had long been heralded in civilized communities as that of a great sportsman was driven from Africa with orders never to return when Buana found that his big bag of fourteen lions had been made by the diligent use of poisoned bait. The result was that all good sportsmen and all the natives loved and respected him. His word was law where there had never been law before. There was scarce a headman from coast to coast who would not heed the big Buana's commands in preference to those of the hunters who employed them, and so it was easy to turn back any undesirable stranger. Buana had simply to threaten to order his boys to desert him. But there was evidently one who had slipped into the country unheralded. Buona could not imagine who the approaching horseman might be. After the manner of frontier hospitality, the globe round, he met the newcomer at the gate, welcoming him even before he had dismounted. He saw a tall, well-knit man of thirty or over, blond hair and smooth-shaven. There was a tantalizing familiarity about him that convinced Buona that he should be able to call the visitor by name yet he was unable to do so. The newcomer was evidently of Scandinavian origin. Both his appearance and accent denoted that. His manner was rough, but open. He made a good impression upon the Englishman, who was wont to accept strangers in this wild and savage country at their own valuation, asking no questions and assuming the best of them, until they proved themselves undeserving of his friendship and hospitality. "'It is rather unusual that a white man comes unheralded,' he said, as they walked together toward the field, into which he had suggested that the traveller might turn his pony. "'My friends, the natives, keep us rather well posted.' "'It is probably due to the fact that I came from the south,' explained the stranger, "'that you did not hear of my coming. I have seen no village for several marches.' "'No, there are none to the south of us for many miles,' replied Juana. "'Since Kovudu deserted his country, I rather doubt that one could find a native in that direction under two or three hundred miles.' Juana was wondering how a lone white man could have made his way through the savage, unhospitable miles that lay toward the south. As though guessing what must be passing through the other's mind, the stranger vouchsafed an explanation. I came down from the north to do a little trading and hunting, he said, and got way off the beaten track. My head man, who was the only member of the safari who had ever been in the country, took sick and died. 
we could find no natives to guide us, and so I simply swung back straight north. We have been living on the fruits of our guns for over a month. Didn't have an idea there was a white man within a thousand miles of us when we camped last night by a water-hole at the edge of the plain. This morning I started out to hunt and saw the smoke from your chimney, so I sent my gun-bearer back to camp with the good news and rode straight over here myself. Of course I've heard of you. Everybody who comes into Central Africa does, and I'd be mighty glad of permission to rest up and hunt around here for a couple of weeks. Certainly, replied Buona. Move your camp up close to the river below my boy's camp and make yourself at home. They had reached the veranda now, and Buona was introducing the stranger to Miriam and my dear, who had just come from the bungalow's interior. This is Mr. Hanson, he said, using the name the man had given him. He is a trader who has lost his way in the jungle to the south. My dear and Miriam bowed their acknowledgments of the introduction. The man seemed rather ill at ease in their presence. His host attributed this to the fact that his guest was unaccustomed to the society of cultured women, and so found a pretext to quickly extricate him from his seemingly unpleasant position, and lead him away to his study, and the brandy and soda which were evidently much less embarrassing to Mr. Hanson. When the two had left them, Miriam turned toward my dear. "'It is odd,' she said but I could almost swear that I had known Mr. Hanson in the past. It is odd, but quite impossible. And she gave the matter no further thought. Hanson did not accept Juana's invitation to move his camp closer to the bungalow. He said his boys were inclined to be quarrelsome, and so were better off at a distance. And he himself was around but little, and then always avoided coming into contact with the ladies a fact which naturally aroused only laughing comment on the rough trader's bashfulness. He accompanied the men on several hunting trips where they found him perfectly at home, and well versed in all the finer points of big-game hunting. Of an evening he often spent much time with the white foreman of the big farm, evidently finding in the society of this rougher man more common interest than the cultured guests of Buana possessed for him. So it came that his was a familiar figure about the premises by night, he came and went as he saw fit, often wandering along in the great flower-garden that was the especial pride and joy of my dear, and Miriam. The first time that he had been surprised there he apologized gruffly, explaining that he had always been fond of the good old blooms of northern Europe which my dear had so successfully transplanted in African soil. Was it, though, the ever-beautiful blossoms of hollyhocks and flocks, that drew him to the perfumed air of the garden, or that other infinitely more beautiful flower who wandered often among the blooms beneath the great moon, the black-haired, sun-tanned Miriam? For three weeks Hanson had remained. During this time he said that his boys were resting and gaining strength after their terrible ordeals in the untracked jungle to the south, but he had not been as idle as he appeared to have been. He divided his small following into two parties, entrusting the leadership of each to men whom he believed that he could trust. To them he explained his plans and the rich reward that they would win from him if they carried his designs to a successful conclusion. One party he moved very slowly northward along the trail that connects with the great caravan routes entering the Sahara from the south. 
The other he ordered straight westward with orders to halt and go into permanent camp just beyond the great river which marks the natural boundary of the country that the big Buana rightfully considers almost his own. To his host he explained that he was moving his safari slowly toward the north. He said nothing of the party moving westward. Then one day he announced that half his boys had deserted, for a hunting party from the bungalow had come across his northerly camp, and he feared that they might have noticed the reduced numbers of his following. And thus matters stood when one hot night Miriam, unable to sleep, rose and wandered out into the garden. The Honorable Morrison had been urging his suit once more that evening, and the girl's mind was in such turmoil that she had been unable to sleep. The wide heavens about her seemed to promise a greater freedom from doubt and questioning. Baines had urged her to tell him that she loved him. A dozen times she thought that she might honestly give him the answer that he demanded. Korak fast was becoming but a memory. That he was dead she had come to believe, since otherwise he would have sought her out. She did not know that he had even better reason to believe her dead and that it was because of that belief he had made no effort to find her after his raid upon the village of Kovudu. Behind a great flowering shrub, Hanson lay gazing at the stars and waiting. He had lain thus and there many nights before. For what was he waiting, or for whom? He heard the girl approaching, and half raised himself to his elbow. A dozen paces away, the reins looped over a fence-post, stood his pony. Miriam, walking slowly, approached the bush behind which the waiter lay. Hanson drew a large bandana handkerchief from his pocket and rose stealthily to his knees. A pony neighed down at the corrals. Far out across the plain a lion roared. Hanson changed his position until he squatted upon both feet, ready to come erect quickly. Again the pony neighed, this time closer. There was the sound of his body brushing against the shrubbery. Hanson heard and wondered how the animal had gotten from the corral, for it was evident that he was already in the garden. The man turned his head in the direction of the beast. What he saw sent him to the ground, huddled close beneath the shrubbery. A man was coming, leading two ponies. Miriam heard now and stopped to look and listen. A moment later the Honorable Morrison Baines drew near, the two saddled mounts at his heels. Miriam looked up at him in surprise. The Honorable Morrison grinned sheepishly. I couldn't sleep, he explained, and was going for a bit of a ride when I chanced to see you out here, and I thought you'd like to join me. Ripping good sport, you know, night riding. Come on. Miriam laughed. The adventure appealed to her. All right, she said. Hanson swore beneath his breath. The two led their horses from the garden to the gate and through it. There they discovered Hanson's mount. "'Why, here's the trader's pony,' remarked Baines. "'He's probably down visiting with the foreman,' said Miriam. "'Pretty late for him, isn't it?' remarked the Honorable Morrison. "'I'd hate to have to ride back through that jungle at night to his camp.' As though to give weight to his apprehensions, the distant lion roared again. The Honorable Morrison shivered and glanced at the girl to note the effect of the uncanny sound upon her. She appeared not to have noticed it. A moment later the two had mounted and were moving slowly across the moon-bathed plain. The girl turned her pony's head straight toward the jungle. It was in the direction of the roaring of the hungry lion. 
"'Hadn't we better steer clear of that fellow?' suggested the Honorable Morrison. "'I guess you didn't hear him.' "'Yes, I heard him,' laughed Miriam. "'Let's ride over and call on him.' The Honorable Morrison laughed uneasily. He didn't care to appear at a disadvantage before this girl, nor did he care either to approach a hungry lion too closely at night. He carried his rifle in his saddle-boot, but moonlight is an uncertain light to shoot by, nor ever had he faced a lion alone, even by day. The thought gave him a distinct nausea. The beast ceased his roaring now, they heard him no more, and the Honorable Morrison gained courage accordingly. They were riding downwind toward the jungle. The lion lay in a little swale to their right. He was old. For two nights he had not fed for no longer was his charge as swift or his spring as mighty as in the days of his prime when he spread terror among the creatures of his wild domain. For two nights and days he had gone empty, and for a long time before that he had fed only upon carrion. He was old, but he was yet a terrible engine of destruction. At the edge of the forest the Honorable Morrison drew rein. He had no desire to go further. Numa, silent upon his padded feet, crept into the jungle beyond them. The wind now was blowing gently between him and his intended prey. He had come a long way in search of man, for even in his youth he had tasted human flesh, and while it was poor stuff by comparison with Eland and Zebra, it was less difficult to kill. In Numa's estimation man was a slow-witted, slow-footed creature, which commanded no respect unless accompanied by the acrid odor which spelled to the monarch's sensitive nostrils the great noise and the blinding flash of an express rifle. He caught the dangerous scent tonight, but he was ravenous to madness. He would face a dozen rifles, if necessary, to fill his empty belly. He circled about into the forest that he might again be downwind from his victims, for should they get his scent he could not hope to overtake them. Numa was famished, but he was old and crafty. Deep in the jungle another caught faintly the scent of man and of Numa both. He raised his head and sniffed. He cocked it upon one side and listened. "'Come on,' said Miriam. "'Let's ride in away. The forest is wonderful at night. It is open enough to permit us to ride.' The Honorable Morrison hesitated. He shrank from revealing his fear in the presence of the girl— a braver man, sure of his own position, would have had the courage to have refused uselessly to expose the girl to danger. He would not have thought of himself at all, but the egotism of the Honorable Morrison required that he think always of self first. He had planned the ride to get Miriam away from the bungalow. He wanted to talk to her alone, and far enough away, so should she take offense at his proposed suggestion, he would have time in which to attempt to right himself in her eyes before they reached home. He had little doubt, of course, but that he should succeed, but it is to his credit that he did have some slight doubts. "'You needn't be afraid of the lion,' said Miriam, noting his slight hesitancy. There hasn't been a man-eater around here for two years, Buona says, and the game is so plentiful that there is no necessity to drive Numa to human flesh. Then he has been so often hunted that he rather keeps out of man's way. Oh, I'm not afraid of lions, replied the Honorable Morrison. I was just thinking what a beastly, uncomfortable place a forest is to ride in, what with the underbrush and the low branches and all that. 
You know it's not exactly cut out for pleasure-writing. Let's go afoot, then, suggested Miriam, and started to dismount. Oh, no, cried the Honorable Morrison, aghast at this suggestion. Let's ride, and he reined his pony into the dark shadows of the wood. Behind him came Miriam, and in front, prowling ahead, waiting a favorable opportunity, skulked Numa the lion. Out upon the plain a lone horseman muttered a low curse as he saw the two disappear from sight. It was Hanson. He had followed them from the bungalow. Their way led in the direction of his camp, so he had a ready and plausible excuse should they discover him. But they had not seen him, for they had not turned their eyes behind. Now he turned directly toward the spot at which they had entered the jungle. He no longer cared whether he was observed or not. There were two reasons for his indifference. The first was that he saw in Bain's act a counterpart of his own planned abduction of the girl. In some way he might turn the thing to his own purposes. At least he would keep in touch with them and make sure that Baines did not get her. His other reason was based on his knowledge of an event that had transpired at his camp the previous night, an event which he had not mentioned at the bungalow for fear of drawing undesired attention to his movements and bringing the blacks of the big Buana into dangerous intercourse with his own boys. He had told at the bungalow that half his men had deserted. That story might be quickly disproved should his boys and Buanas grow confidential. The event that he had failed to mention, and which now urged him hurriedly after the girl and her escort, had occurred during his absence early the preceding evening. His men had been sitting around their campfire, entirely encircled by a high thorn boma, when without the slightest warning a huge lion had leaped amongst them and seized one of their number. It had been solely due to the loyalty and courage of his comrades that his life had been saved, and then only after a battle royal with the hunger-enraged beast had they been able to drive him off with burning brands, spears, and rifles. From this Hanson knew that a man-eater had wandered into the district, or been developed by the aging of one of the many lions who ranged the plains and hills by night, or lay up in the cool wood by day. He had heard the roaring of a hungry lion not half an hour before, and there was little doubt in his mind but that the man-eater was stalking Miriam and Baines. He cursed the Englishman for a fool, and spurred rapidly after them. Miriam and Baines had drawn up in a small natural clearing. A hundred yards beyond them Numa lay crouching in the underbrush, his yellow-green eyes fixed upon his prey, the tip of his sinuous tail jerking spasmodically. He was measuring the distance between him and them. He was wondering if he dared venture a charge, or should he wait yet a little longer in the hope that they might ride straight into his jaws. He was very hungry, but also was he very crafty. He could not chance losing his meat by hasty and ill-considered rush. Had he waited the night before until the black slept, he would not have been forced to go hungry for another twenty-four hours. Behind him the other that had caught his scent and that of man together came to a sitting posture upon the branch of a tree in which he had reposed himself for slumber. Beneath him a lumbering gray hulk swayed to and fro in the darkness. The beast in the tree uttered a low guttural and dropped to the back of the gray mass. He whispered a word in one of the great ears, and Tantor the elephant raised his trunk aloft 
swinging it high and low to catch the scent that the word had warned him of. There was another whispered word. Was it a command? And the lumbering beast wheeled into an awkward yet silent shuffle in the direction of Numa the lion and the stranger Tarmangani his rider had scented. Onward they went, the scent of the lion and his prey becoming stronger and stronger. Numa was becoming impatient. How much longer must he wait for his meat to come his way? He lashed his tail viciously now. He almost growled. All unconscious of their danger, the man and the girl sat talking in the little clearing. Their horses were pressed side by side. Baines had found Miriam's hand and was pressing it as he poured words of love into her ear, and Miriam was listening. "'Come to London with me,' urged the Honorable Morrison. "'I can gather a safari, and we can be a whole day upon the way to the coast before they guess that we have gone.' "'Why must we go that way?' asked the girl. "'Buana and my dear would not object to our marriage.' "'I cannot marry you just yet,' explained the Honorable Morrison. "'There are some formalities to be attended to first. "'You do not understand. "'It will be all right. "'We will go to London.' I cannot wait. If you love me, you will come. What of the apes you lived with? Did they bother about marriage? They love as we love. Had you stayed among them, you would have mated as they mate. It is the law of nature. No man-made law can abrogate the laws of God. What difference does it make if we love one another? What do we care for anyone in the world besides ourselves? I would give my life for you. Will you give nothing for me? "'You love me?' she said. "'You will marry me when we have reached London?' "'I swear it,' he cried. "'I will go with you,' she whispered, "'though I do not understand why it is necessary.' She leaned toward him, and he took her in his arms and bent to press his lips to hers. At the same instant the head of a huge tusker poked through the trees that fringed the clearing. The Honorable Morrison and Miriam, with eyes and ears for one another alone, did not see or hear, but Numa did. The man upon Tantor's broad head saw the girl in the man's arms. It was Korak, but in the trim figure of the neatly garbed girl he did not recognize his Miriam. He only saw a Tarmangani with his she. And then Numa charged. With a frightful roar, fearful lest Tantor had come to frighten away his prey, the great beast leaped from his hiding-place. The earth trembled to his mighty voice. The pony stood for an instant transfixed with terror. The Honorable Morrison Baines went white and cold. The lion was charging toward them full in the brilliant light of the magnificent moon. The muscles of the Honorable Morrison no longer obeyed his will. They flexed to the urge of a greater power, the power of nature's first law. They drove his spurred heels deep into his pony's flanks. They bore the rein against the brute's neck that wheeled him with an impetuous drive toward the plain and safety. The girl's pony, squealing in terror, reared and plunged upon the heels of his mate. The lion was close upon him. Only the girl was cool the girl and the half-naked savage who bestrode the neck of his mighty mount and grinned at the exciting spectacle chance had staked for his enjoyment. To Korak here were but two strange Tarmangani pursued by Numa, who was empty. It was Numa's right to pray, but one was a she. Korak felt an intuitive urge to rush to her protection. Why, he could not guess. All Tarmangani were enemies now, 
He had lived too long a beast to feel strongly the humanitarian impulses that were inherent in him. Yet feel them he did, for the girl at least. He urged Tantor forward. He raised his heavy spear and hurled it at the flying target of the lion's body. The girl's pony had reached the trees upon the opposite side of the clearing. Here he would become easy prey to the swiftly moving lion. But Numa, infuriated, preferred the woman upon his back. It was for her he leaped. Korak gave an exclamation of astonishment and approval as Numa landed upon the pony's rump, and at the same instant the girl swung free of her mount to the branches of a tree above her. Korak's spear struck Numa in the shoulder, knocking him from his precarious hold upon the frantically plunging horse. Freed of the weight of both girl and lion, the pony raced ahead toward safety. Numa tore and struck at the missile in his shoulder, but could not dislodge it. Then he resumed the chase. Korak guided Tantor into the seclusion of the jungle. He did not wish to be seen, nor had he. Hanson had almost reached the wood when he heard the lion's terrific roars and knew that the charge had come. An instant later the Honorable Morrison broke upon his vision, racing like mad for safety. The man lay flat upon his pony's back, hugging the animal's neck tightly with both arms and digging the spurs into his sides. An instant later the second pony appeared, riderless. Hanson groaned as he guessed what had happened out of sight in the jungle. With an oath he spurred on in the hope of driving the lion from his prey. His rifle was ready in his hand, and then the lion came into view behind the girl's pony. Hanson could not understand. He knew that if Numa had succeeded in seizing the girl, he would not have continued in pursuit of the others. He drew in his own mount, took quick aim, and fired. The lion stopped in his tracks, turned and bit at his side, then rolled over dead. Hanson rode on into the forest, calling aloud to the girl. "'Here I am,' came a quick response from the foliage of the trees just ahead. "'Did you hit him?' "'Yes,' replied Hanson. "'Where are you? You had a mighty narrow escape. It will teach you to keep out of the jungle at night.' Together they returned to the plain, where they found the Honorable Morrison riding slowly back toward them. He explained that his pony had bolted, and that he had had hard work stopping him at all. Hanson grinned, for he recalled the pounding heels that he had seen driving sharp spurs into the flanks of Bain's mount, but he said nothing of what he had seen. He took Marion up behind him, and the three rode in silence toward the bungalow. End of chapter 18